Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, and the opposite. As well, we talk about everything. And folks, I mean everything. Brandis and I can talk and talk about anything. But however... It's two guys of the podcast, Sam. Right. I mean, this is what it's for, right? So anyway, today... We are doing Isirian's in Sheridian of the West Marches. This is the episode that is going to cover the final four pages of the book proper and uh, may touch on some of the appendices. We will see. But I am, of course, here with my wonderful co-host, Brandis. How are you tonight, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, I thought about interrupting you in the middle of your opening spiel. So that you could deal with some emergent narrative in the middle of talking about emergent. No, it might have been apropos. I, I mean, mean, all of our digressions are basically emergent narrative anyway. So whatever. Very true. Yes. Yes. It's not like yes. we have a plan, y'all. Wait, we don't. Shh, you're not supposed to tell them. Sam, they done figured it out. I, ho- I hope so. <laughs> Dear listeners, if you are listening to this and you haven't figured it out yet, <laughs> uh, uh, God bless you, my sweet summer children. <laughs> <laughs> so, emergent narrative. What say you? So, um, we're going to get to the section of this that I think is just the the absolute magic of the whole thing. This is a really strong section. Um, and at the same time, I mean, it's our refrain, right? You know, I'm going to say, I wish it were longer. Just <laughs> this needs so many more worked examples to teach it, but it's not the book's responsibility, responsibility to teach it because it's only one element. So, you know, okay, fair. You do need to read other sources to start thinking about how some of this is used in literature and games. But still, this is this is good, strong stuff, and um, I'm excited to talk about it. So, um, I, I think that starting with what emergent really means, sidebar is probably a, a well, pretty good choice to me. So let me let me actually read the the fir- a, a, a snippet from the first piece of this because uh, then then we can talk about that sidebar. Yeah, hit it. Um, it says the West marches, as Robbins famously said, talking about Ben Robbins, the initiator of this concept here. Uh, as Robbins famously said, have no story. There is no plot, no critical quest, and no overarching narrative plan. Everything is reliant on the players and their actions within the broader world. The story of the game is defined by player actions and roles of the dice. This kind of narrative, one that is unplanned and driven by systems, is called emergent narrative. It grows and evolves based on the systems of the game rather than anything pre-planned. It emerges. And then this section goes on to talk about the different areas where you're going to see the emergence of this narrative. And then it ends with the sidebar, which says emergent narrative is one of those buzzwords that gets passed around quite a bit in the game circles, and it can sometimes get lost. 
Here, it simply means, quote, meaningful stories that are driven by the game systems, end quote. Technically, walking from town to the woods to the mountain could be considered emergent narrative in that, yes, it was a narrative that emerged from the game system, but that's not very exciting. Getting ambushed by a surprise pack of lycanthropes and barely escaping with your lives only to discover that one of your comrades has been bitten is exciting, and that's the kind of story that can emerge solely from gameplay. Emergent narrative is the stories that aren't planned by the GM or the players. They're the stories that emerge from mechanical systems interacting with both of those in interesting ways. So to be clear, what they're saying is walking through the woods up the mountain isn't exciting. Walking through the woods up the mountain, the lycanthropes, lycanthropes attack, that encounter was randomly determined based on where they were, what region, what weather, and what season, which was all determined as part of this whole setup and framework. And then there was a battle, and as they as they are exiting out of that scene, they realize due to things that happened in that battle, one of their comrades has been bitten, and they have a pretty good idea what that means. That's the story that you didn't know was going to happen because now they have to respond to that, right? That's the stuff you didn't know that was going to happen until play occurred. So the the example case from my own gaming history that always comes to mind for me when I think about an emergent narrative does involve werewolves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this time in a LARP I was playing, Shattered Isles, where um, one group of players was getting chased by a pack of werewolves. And in Shattered Isles, werewolves were some bad news. You were screwed. Like, <laughs> they were they were really top-end awful. Okay. Uh, and so they're, they're coming one way up a road to this three-way intersection. And coming up another leg of that road is uh, these like heroic spirits who are manifesting in the world with their top-level gear. These are all NPCs uh, because they've been like contacted by the PCs who have been, you know, engaged with them in the storyline for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and like they are more top end level badasses than PCs could be at that point in the campaign. They're just hell on wheels badasses. No one planned this. No one was like, wouldn't it be cool to watch them just wreck face? <laughs> but that's what happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, William the Black and Durgia Iron Hair and some of their other companions come up this road with their awesome named weapons like daylight and hat taker and just go through these werewolves like a hot knife through butter (laughs) nice and like these plot lines are not intended to intersect no one ever had that in mind but that's what happened Mm -hmm. that's emergent narrative for you Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm cool 
my, my favorite story of emergent narrative that happened that I always think of there, there are others, but this one I always think of is, is actually because of a, a, a speaking or an understanding fumble that happened. It wasn't actually something that was supposed to happen in game. So here's what happened. Uh, the party was um, they came into this new town and this town looked like it had like, it was kind of a little shanty town a little bit. It, it was a little tiny village or Thorpe. It didn't have a lot going for it. Um, um, but uh, it was near a, 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 a cave system that, ha- that had it had recently been discovered. It had some ore in there, so it was going to become a mine. And so the town was kind of uh, starting to be gentrified in a way. Um, and so, so the party gets there, and uh, they're getting to know some NPCs, and they go into this uh, to this weapon shop. And so there's the blacksmith there, and he's doing a bunch of work. And uh, he, he says something like, you know, I'll be with you in a moment. And they're looking around. And then when he comes out, uh, I say, okay, he comes out from, you know, you know, he, he puts whatever he's working on down and he comes out and I start describing this, this blacksmith to the party. And as part of the description, I say he has huge forearms. Right. Because, of course, he's a blacksmith. So he's used to like using crimping tools and twisting things and whatever. And that takes a lot of forearms. So I say he has, he's a beefy lad. Sure. He's, he's a beefy lad. He's got huge forearms. But one of my players heard it as he has four arms. Oh, no. And the player said, what did you just say? Did you say he has four arms? What the hell? Why does this guy have four arms? Oh, my God. I can't. What is this? What's going on in this town that this guy has four arms? And at first I was like, no, no, no. And the other players start laughing because they had heard what I said. (laughs) And then he was like, he thought I was being serious. Like this blacksmith has four arms. He's like, oh, my God. You know what? And and finally I said, "Okay, you know what? He has four arms. Yes, he has four arms. And so that you were right and town, I was wrong. You were right. He has four arms. And that was just, you know, he just literally, I don't know if because uh, we were online, I don't know if he if I blipped out and so he didn't hear anything other than four and arms, like or or if he missed the like, but he thought I really said four. So that was that that NPC in that moment became the blacksmith with four arms. And then what had to come out of that is, of course, they want to know. How do you have four arms? What the hell is going on here? But of course, he's big and burly and he could kick their butts at this point. They're first level, you know, PCs. So they're not going to ask him. (laughs) Right. So now they're going around town and now they're meeting all these other crazy kooky people and they're trying to find out how did the blacksmith get four arms. And they're learning that all the other people are kind of a little bit weird, too. In fact, the blacksmith originally was going to be like the normal one. But that went out the window. So that was that is something that would not have happened if it wasn't just for the interaction at the table. Right. (laughs) And so, I mean, it was it's hilarious. And I love telling that story because that's truly what happened. Completely unexpected, not because of anything anybody did on purpose. It was just boom. There it is. You know what? That makes sense for everything that's going on in just raw chaos, Yeah, just raw chaos. And suddenly they were like, yeah something's affecting this town. Now we have, it gave them a purpose. They wanted to find out what was going on. (laughs) That's amazing. It was great. It was absolutely great. It was great. And that ladies and gentlemen is what this book is talking about when it says emergent narrative as the game is being played. Mutants with forearms. That's what, that's what they're talking about. Blacksmiths with forearms. Yes. (laughs) But, Um, but yeah, it, it means through play during play, things happen 
that you didn't necessarily expect or and you definitely didn't plan yep that are now part of that game yep um and you know um one of the things about games that sort of gets to what you're talking about i think is that even in diceless games there can be just absolute chaos mm -hmm. at the table because you know a table a role-playing game is anywhere from you know two to let's say seven or eight minds right. bouncing off of each other mm -hmm. in real time and often and, often all with similar sort of touch tones and bits of knowledge and i mean like in terms of in the real world, like pop culture references, a lot, most people that are sitting at the tables uh, playing games with others, they've seen many of the same movies, read many of the same books, uh -huh. seen many of the same. So you have this sort of zeitgeist setup of people who have very similar interests and similar touchstones of knowledge that they can play off of. And they have conversations that maybe from the outside wouldn't necessarily even be understandable to a, a lot of quote normal people. Right. I'll tell you what, it, it was in a, in a mage game. I ran for a, a year or two. Uh, there was one player who just as part of his nature, is just always on a different wavelength mm -hmm. conversation from people around him. I mean, I, I love this dude, but mm -hmm. it, it, it's just his nature. Right. right. And, and it, it makes him fascinating to game with, and an absolute chaos demon. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, because like he's aware of the touchstones, but he's interpreted everything differently. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it's right. great, actually, because yeah, yeah. it's just, what does the other side of this coin look like? Well, right. I don't know, because I can't. <laughs> like get around it nope there's a guy over there he's just telling us what the, the other side of the coin looks like wow <laughs> okay nice no that's good that's good um so anyway so back to the book so now that you kind yeah. of understand like where we're coming from um you probably understand already if you've listened to this show for any length of time that brandis and i both really love this section of the book oh, because man. it is describing the pinnacle of fun gaming for me personally yeah right? it's describing that pinnacle of here's when it's when it's humming like when when it is going along and it's just a great game night and it's going so smooth and things are happening and then you get a moment of pure just emergent narrative that is running it and and running rampant in the game whether it's causing chaos or whether it's whatever it's doing it's just so beautiful. It's just a beautiful moment in gaming. And so what they're saying here is the aim in part in the West marches is that that's the entire game is those moments that that emergent play is happening all the time, precisely because you haven't planned specific plots, but you have done the work to set up the marches, to set up your marches based on the previous 65 pages worth of explanations and descriptions and telling you how to run it. And the culmination is telling you the payoff, okay? The culmination of doing all that work, then it, it is work. It, this is, again, not a lazy person's way to run a game. It's work. Lord, no. And that work, though, has this brilliant, beautiful payoff. 
And that's what it's talking about. And so it goes into talking about how the different regions that you've put your painstaking effort into creating and, and setting up in, in the description from the chapter two and three and the weather and how though all that, those weather effects that we talked about and how they, how they can change, how much travel occurs and how the party responds and whether equipment matters and all that stuff, all that goes in there. And then random encounters affect everything, right? Random encounters, it says, introduce unexpected elements and those unexpected elements in turn make the narrative hard to predict and thus more emergent. Well, right. you, you can think of it as, you know, I, I have a map, and on this map, I've placed 500 uh, slightly overwound wind-up toys. Mm-hmm. Let's go. <laughs> there can be only one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and then it moves on, and it, and it, it's. It, on the next page, I'm, I'm kind of stuttering almost because it's just so beautifully done here. On the next page, it talks about uh, what they're calling indexical storytelling, which is storytelling that relies upon indices. And so for those of you listening, if you don't know, index is a term that you probably do know. An index is uh, normally thought of as a listing like in the back of a textbook or of, 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 a, of a reference manual that provides you the page numbers and maybe some information about particular terms, right? That's an index. Well, the plural of index is indices. So the indices of knowledge and the indices of storytelling is what this whole next page is about. And this is basically trying to explain to the reader how you take the lore parts, because that last part was about, you know, the regions and the weather and the encounters. And this indexical storytelling part is about how you take the lore and the factions and the motivations and you put them into the game so that you get the output of emergent storytelling that you that you are desiring that is the goal um so indexical storytelling is this incredibly amazing force that um it's a huge part of what makes dark souls and all from soft games go mm-hmm. um because sort of famously they deliver so little lore or narrative directly. And so you get people who analyze down to the the finest detail to try to reconstruct what happened. I mean, they're they're playing forensic detectives functionally in Dark Souls Mm -hmm. or Elden Ring or whatever. And um, that's just, that's amazing stuff. I'm really feeling this section right now because uh, I think last time we recorded, I was talking about a a dungeon session I was prepping for. Mm -hmm. Well, now I've run it, right? Right. I ran it last Sunday. Nice. How'd it go? It went great. (laughs) I was so happy with how it went. And indexical storytelling uh, was a big part of how that flowed, right? Um, Like, I, I guess I feel strange about calling it indexical storytelling. Uh, that yeah, that is a term of of jargon that I hadn't heard before reading this. Yeah, and so, it, it wouldn't 
like spring to mind for me. Right. So let, let me act before I let you go on and talk about how this worked in your game. Let me actually, yeah. for the audience, tell them exactly what, because I kind of defined index and in the word indices, but, but let's actually sure. apply it to RPGs the way that the way that the authors of this text do. Here's what sure. they say. Indexical storytelling can broadly be defined as the telling of stories through individual symbols, markers, or icons. They call these indices. So each individual one is an index, and so a group of them would be the indices. Consider the dungeon chamber, which holds a broken shield, a cracked sword, splatters of blood along the wall, and then a long trail of blood interspersed with huge bloody claw prints. Each of those is an index. What story do they tell? It's interpretable, but you probably thought of a story in which a monster entered a chamber, uh, defeated a would-be dungeoneer, and then dragged them deeper within. It's a simple right. story. It's but totally it's classic splatterpunk. Completely classic, right? But it's one entirely told through artifacts of gameplay, through the indices. Humans as players are highly talented in coming up with possible solutions and through lines for individual indices presented to them. It's environmental detective work all through the lens of game narrative. That statement. So that was the first two paragraphs of this of this page. That statement. And I'm sorry, uh, listener, for reading the book to you, but I mean, these three pages of book are just so brilliant. I can't even say it better. So it's easier for me to read it. Okay. But I agree with that. Yes. Yeah. It's stated it's, really it's, concisely. It's so great. And and the thing is, like that statement about humans as players, our brains are pattern recognition adherers. Okay. They yeah. they are set up to help us recognize patterns because that's how we are able to predict the outcome of our particular actions. And that's what helps us make decisions. We are really, really, really good at it because we have a huge frontal lobe. Okay. And this is what we do. And basically what this section is telling you is let your players do that. It comes natural to the human being and you can do it in the West marches. And that's how you're providing the lore in itty bitty tiny pieces that then the party has to figure the pattern of how are those things related? What do they have to do with everything else? And how do I respond to them as a PC? And that's where the emergent storytelling comes from. So now I'll let you move on and <laughs> and talk about how well your 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 well. well so went. the the sections on indices of the designer and indices of the players is actually going to be irrelevant to the story. Excellent. So let me let me hit those real quick. Please do. Um, so indices of the designer is content the GM put there, right? Um, indices of the players are things that they functionally added to the scene either deliberately or collaterally right it's it's their collateral damage showing up it's their decision to add some graffiti to the wall mm -hmm. um but a, a note that i'm uh, including with intent um mm -hmm. and and so or or the can, they leave the body of the dead goblin they killed or they right or they had a a, a campfire because they camped, and even if they put the campfire out, they've left ashes. Right. Right. They change the space by passing through it. Right. Is essentially how you yes. can. That's the forensic that. part of the right, because forensic science is literally just look anywhere you go, you leave something behind. Forensic science is studying what that thing is. Yep. Absolutely. So, so in this session. Uh, so this is the, the second floor of a mega dungeon that the PCs have been to before, right? 
And now the last time they went here, uh, it was a completely different set of players. There are uh, no, sorry, uh, of characters. There okay. are no overlapping characters. There's a very small number of overlapping players. It's mostly okay. all different players. Which, um, by the way, is kind of an offshoot of how the West Marches works and is is really good for this sort of thing, right? Because yep. half the players get have a different idea of what's going on than the other half. So yep. anyway, um, <laughs> that's yeah, so awesome. <laughs> so, so this campaign is a very uh, just piecemeal uh, borrowing of West March's ideas. Okay. Right? I, I was reading um, Ben Robbins posts while I was designing this. Nice. And was very influenced by them. So, um, so the PCs have like been through this dungeon before some different characters have been through this dungeon before. Mm-hmm. And, at, at the same time, even the players who were here before barely remember it because it was, I don't know, five years, six years of real time. Okay. Since they were here. It's a long time. Um, like my notes are on it aren't great, mm-hmm. but um, I remember a, a few key scenes that I can, you know, talk up and focus on. Um, but also other NPC adventurers have come through and done stuff. And I, like, I'm just trying to level up my dungeon presentation. Right. And so I do wildly more prep for this session than I've done for anything in years. Okay. Right. Um, <laughs> right, I, right. I, I spend days of writing, uh, working on these rooms and this, this is a, a success story. I'm happy with how this turns out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be clear. Um, sorry, lazy DMS. <laughs> I'm, I'm not with you on this one. This is a, a good payoff. So, um, some of the indexical storytelling that I'm doing is like, it's as, as straightforward as there's a bunch of graffiti on one of the walls. So the PCs can just go read it. Well, I, I'm just borrowing the message system uh, between players out of Dark Souls and Elden Ring, sort mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. except that like they're all written in the same place and I know exactly what they're referring to. Right. There's these eight messages. Um, in another room, there's all of these bones that have been kicked into the corners of the room. And I proceed to describe in the, these bones in detail, like, Oh no, this one has like a, a bat like wing structure. What's that about? Hmm. And, you know, this is just a memorable fight from the time the previous PCs were here. Hmm. They fought spines devils. The spine devils <laughs> nice. had wings. That's, that's what's up. Right. Uh, I, I described that last time, and so I'm just carrying it forward mm-hmm. this time. Mm-hmm. But it's a whole new mystery to these PCs because their characters weren't here. Right. Now, I, I do clue them in a bit um, because there isn't a lot deeper to find here. I don't want them to get obsessed with it right. of just, hey, this is just a continuity nod. Um, and, and we've all had that happen, too. I have a story oh, oh, about yeah. that as well. <laughs> oh, for sure. But yeah. Um, and like I'm doing that, some of that same kind of storytelling with like this room smells like green and growing things. This room smells mm. like rot. This mm-hmm. room smells like decay with something deeper and more messed up. Um, and so they're getting a lot of signals from that um, as to what's up ahead, what to expect here, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, the players proceed to add their own graffiti to 
the writings, uh, right. you know, over in that corner, right. um, because they realize that there's this oracular pool they can throw coins into to get some dirt cheap divinations. <laughs> nice, really, really cheap divinations. Right, like a, a silver for an augury and a gold for a divination. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Okay, the thing is, the pool is very limited in how it can communicate back because it. It, it, it basically has to spend as little energy as possible to get them information. So it's just using memories from around the dungeon, such as the writing already on the wall. Mm, okay. So it's repeating those phrases back to them mm-hmm. uh, as sort of contextually close as possible to answer their questions. Right. Right. So their question is recontextualizing the answers. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like it isn't what that quote was originally about. Right. It's just what it's about now. <laughs> um, so what they do is they go write more answers on the wall to give the right. oracular pool more it can say. Right, right, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> nice. they figure out how it's working. Right. Like, oh, we need you to tell us north, south, east, and west. So we're going to write north, south, east, and west on the wall. Right. <laughs> Which I love because that's so simple for their purposes. But the next group that comes along is just going to like, that is so awful for signal to noise ratio. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) Because it's now fully decontextualized. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love that. Um, Excellent. And I I find that so amazing. But anyway, um, they they went through a bunch of rooms, um, explored a lot of stuff. They, like doubled back to a lot of rooms when they got new information or whatever. I don't know. It just went really well. Um, they didn't finish their goal, but I didn't expect them to. Right. Something I think I said earlier on talking about Azerion's and Caridian is the finish in one session and go home thing mm-hmm. is really hard for me to get my head around. Right. Um, I don't know that I could run enough encounters to feel like the adventure was satisfyingly completed and then they go home mm-hmm. uh, especially if and they go home needs a bunch more playtime right you know i really struggle with that yeah that's a it's a tough one and we're actually going to revisit that in a minute when it talks about uh um uh it might be in the yeah it's 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 in one in the first appendix uh where it talks about playing in real time, we might we might touch on that if we end up getting there. Um, but yeah, that's that's a rough one because that timing and that sort of strict guideline of every session you leave and then you have to come back is really hard. That's a hard one for me too. Yeah, it's a hard one for me too. Um, anyway, um, I, I just think this indexical storytelling. Even if I am a little uh, looking a little scant at that name, uh, it's brilliant stuff, and you need to be doing this mm-hmm. plain and simple. Um, this is a huge part of how to just engage exploration play, right? And and they sort of talk about how, in fact, in the next section, I think they talk about how uh, the next section is called "Show Don't Tell." which of course yeah. is the first advice given to anybody who says they want to write anything, right? For sure. Uh, is don't just 
tell the reader, show them through the actions of the characters and, and all that, but uh, let them come to their own conclusions based on what you've given them. Yep. Uh, and that's really what this is about. But basically it's the idea that, um, you know, your, your main thrust of a West Marches game is actually the discovery. It's the exploration tier, which is not typically the thing that the rest of D&D games focus on. The well, rest of the D&D games are focusing on combat and sometimes the social stuff. Right. And, and I would just say it was, it was framed to me at one point a few years ago, and, and I don't remember where I heard this, so I'm sorry, whatever mm -hmm. wiser person than I pointed this out to me. <laughs> um, but a proper dungeon crawl is actually just a procedural mystery. Right. Yes. Um, that, that really reframed it for me in a useful way, and maybe mm -hmm. it will for you, dear listener. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's why the initial basic D&D dungeon crawls were so procedural mm -hmm. they literally were okay at the beginning of day after they break camp here's what you do you roll to find out this this and this and right. now we go forward right but really importantly you are gathering clues mm -hmm. about the dungeon right. and how to move forward exactly um and then that way you can make a decision about whether to go left or right or forward at that intersection exactly yeah and clues about whether you're ready to engage that uh last mm -hmm. opponent right um and, you know, that isn't a lost art, but I think it's an under-discussed art these days uh, of just yeah. like thinking about the clues you're delivering and helping them to shape up into some answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, so being the Edition Wars podcast, let's have a little bit of a mini Edition War here. Yeah, This is something that is supported the, the the reduction of the exploration phase and the procedural exploration phase is something that is wholly supported by third fourth and fifth edition DD and the reason I say that is because third fourth and fifth edition DD have a lot of things on the character sheet and a lot of those things on the character sheet are meant to be the way they're meant to show the player here's the best way for your pc to solve a problem mm, and so okay. when something occurs the player looks at their sheet um, by the way if it sounds like i'm saying this is derogatory it's not you know i love those editions right but when the when there's an, a challenge the player looks at their pc sheet and they say okay i have this feat and i have that bonus and i have this thing over here I can succeed at that task. That's the way I'm going to overcome that. Instead of looking for clues that might lead to a more creative solution, yeah. I don't need to do that because I have already engaged in building my character in a way that allows me to have these skills and abilities that I can overcome those challenges already on purpose without having to put that puzzle piece together. Okay. So the, those, those games have actively taken away the exploration part by building it into the character and what abilities the character has and what they're good at and making it so that you can reduce it down to a single role. So I, I agree with you in the outcome. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that that is what has happened. Mm -hmm. I, sure. I don't think it is 
intrinsic to the design. Um, but but so what I think has happened is that much as you're saying, players have learned that there's nothing they need to know. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, everything they need to know is is on their character sheet. Everything yeah. they, need to, they need to know is on their character sheet, and th- that boss is going to be solved by what's on their character sheet. Just fine, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It, they can kind of cruise control it through the fights and just be ready to uh, bust out their coolest moves on, on the boss and Bob's your uncle. Um, sure. So I'll, I'll give, I'll give you the idea of, I'll give it to you that I, I don't, I'm not saying that the designers specifically designed it to get rid of the expiration, but I'm not trying to say that, but the, uh, the play, the type of play style that emerges out of having that sort of character building exercise well, if you're going to spend all your time character, all that time character building, don't you want it to be efficient? To, this also leads to optimization, right? In a lot of people. Um, so, so I guess I'm just seeing all of this from a slightly different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I agree with you about the outcome. I have a little bit different of a diagnosis. Um, and my diagnosis essentially falls into uh, the... Uh, monster design and uh, encounter building getting uh, uh, homogenized, right? Uh, what, I, what I'm trying to say is character abilities and um, monster abilities are in a lot of ways a lock and a key, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Uh, well, I guess I should put my simile in the right order. They're a key and a lock. The character abilities are the key. Right. The monster abilities are the lock. Sure. Um, yeah. You, in and, other words, you don't fight a troll if nobody in the party has fire damage. Well, like it, your, your fire damage is the, the key to that troll's lock. Right. Well, that's what I mean. Right. And, and, but, and, and but you know, notice how it, I phrased it, though. That means that the players make a decision right. to not engage with that challenge because they know they can't defeat it. Right. If they're given the information that they should try to not engage with something there's something right. they need to avoid down right. there right. and i think that um i think you absolutely can build encounters with additional wrinkles mm-hmm. that uh put things so that players need to know them in order to engage the encounter it's just that uh that fell out of vogue so i, mm-hmm. I agree with you that it's out of vogue i i think that Designing encounters so that PCs need to know something before they go into it is actually still trivially easy mm-hmm. in third and fourth and fifth. Sure. Uh, if but, I had to tag but, one as the hardest to do that in, I'm actually going to call it fourth. Um, okay, but wait, wait. But so hold on. So let's uh-huh. take a combat encounters out of this out of the calculus here, right? Okay. And okay. just talk about other aspects of the game. Okay. I'm not sure where you're going. Well, so, cause when I'm talking about like uh, solving a problem, I don't necessarily mean solving a problem of how to defeat that. Oh, combat, sure. Right. Sure, sure. I'm talking about any kind of exploration outside of combat. The, because of the way that the, uh, because the way that the characters are built and structured in third, fourth, fifth, it makes it so that the tendency is I'm going to look on my sheet 
to see what I have, what ability or feat or piece of equipment or knowledge bit or whatever that I can apply to that to solve. It's going to solve that issue for me. So I don't have to explore and look for answers outside of my character sheet because my skill as a player I'm not saying me personally, but I'm saying this is this tends to be the way that it goes, right? The thing I've spent the most time on as a player as of yet in an early game is building my character. And so I'm going to try to make it so that that character is really optimized in terms of I'm going to make sure I do the things I'm really good at, that I built this character to be really good at, and I'm going to make sure that I apply those things I'm good at to challenges that match those things, that key in the lock thing you're talking about, but not combat related. I mean, my experience going back to second is that um, non-weapon proficiencies are just as guilty of that. Oh yeah, sure. I, I'm not, I look again, right. I, 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 I'm not meaning this as a derogatory thing. It's a perfectly valid and very fun way to have a game. I'm, I'm not saying sure. that at all. And I'm not even saying that the designers intended for this to be the outcome. All I'm pointing out is the reason why this text that we're talking about tonight has to explain this in such almost basic detail Yeah, is that it's, it's a, it's a, it's the pillar of the game that is basically ignored. It is a lost art to make this part of the game because everybody, if we talk, forget third and fourth edition, fifth edition, everybody has magic to solve a problem. Everybody has class abilities to solve a problem. Everybody has items and, and equipment to solve a problem. That doesn't make it bad. It just makes sure. it what it is. That's part of the game. Part of the fun of the game is making that character with the great subclass, having a good backstory, being a cool kick-ass character. That's fun. Those All those features are supposed to be delivering characterization. Right. Right. But then... Because you do it a little bit differently than everybody else. Right. But then the, then the, then the, the output then, right? The, the culmination of all that is... I spend so much time painstakingly choosing those things. So that means my character sheet is all important. My character is all important. And I need to make sure I'm attempting things that I'm really good at. And generally speaking, the even the published adventures aren't really good at making the, the PCs really explore to find clues. Because usually, and and we've talked about this before, for example, with the ranger problem, right? Sure. That you give that class a set of skills that makes wilderness travel unnecessary Mm -hmm. or unexciting or not a challenge because of the skills that particular class has. Or, you know, there's 10 10 other, you know, examples, right? We're going to get to a place where this book attacks that directly. Where it talks that, yeah, I I know, I know. But, But I'm just saying, like... So that, that, and that's sort of the idea, right? That, that type of idea culminates in, okay, well, then the exploration tier, right? Or the exploration pillar, as they call them, all the pillars of the game, right? It gets shrunk and shrunk and shrunk down in terms of importance and use. Maybe, I mean, maybe not importance. It still looms really heavy in importance in my type, my game that I like to run, right? But it has been reduced because of the skills and abilities and powers and everything of the PCs. And I'm saying that as a neutral statement, it's not a good or bad statement against or for a game or game style. It's just, that's how it is. That's part of the evolution of the game. And so what this book is trying to do is bring some of that exploration back. Right. I I basically disagree with it as 
um, a, a statement of fact about the thing. I agree with it as, as a statement of fact about the community's engagement with the thing. Sure. I'll, I'll and, accept that. And yeah. I'm, I'm drawing that line just because, uh, well, the, the session I've just finished describing to you from my game this past Sunday mm -hmm. was a, almost entirely exploration mm -hmm. uh, with a few uh, conversations with NPCs. Right. You know, there was a ghost, there was a dragon they could talk to. But I'll, po I'll point out to you, though, that you already have said that you planned this particular thing even originally based on the Ben Robbins West Marches stuff that heavily influenced you. Uh, right. Well, 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 I mean, among many influences, but sure, sure. like the, this dungeon in particular was not strongly Ben Robbins influenced. Okay. Uh, the, the campaign as a greater whole. Well, I mean, it was, yeah. okay. it, it was it. but, but it was because it was already in line with what I like. Right. Okay. okay. So, you know, Little column A, little column B. Sure. Um, point being, like it was a six-hour session. There was one fight. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, like the, the the fight helped me tell some story, and it was a, a, a welcome shift of of gears. But it was one fight. Mm -hmm. In in Tomb of Annihilation, um, we've been through a lot uh, in the Tomb of the Nine Gods. Mm -hmm. Not mostly <laughs> combat. Right, right. Combat is a fairly incidental part mm -hmm. of the majority of Tomb of the Nine Gods until you right. get to the very bottom. Right, and 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 you understand why I that's my favorite fifth edition published module. Yeah, right? it, it's friggin' amazing. <laughs> right, uh, Tomb of the Nine Gods is incredible, yeah. um, especially if you have uh, a, a good communication system between. Uh, players in DM, mm -hmm. um, it's very clear to me it, from things the DM has said that our experience could have gone really sour at a lot of points mm -hmm. if he had not been, um, you know, cheering for our characters in just the right way. Right, right. Um, it, this GM has a very good attitude about the game, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> I, you know, I've been around the block enough to see many kinds uh especially you know it, it takes a certain kind of gm to run a death trap dungeon and make it a, a really great experience that is scary but fun but scary mm -hmm. but fun mm -hmm. and to be clear i'm not saying it can't happen and that some yeah. tables can't i mean i myself try to make exploration part of infused into every game, right? No matter what edition I'm playing or what, you know, because to me, that's part of the fun of using, you know, using what you have in front of you to try to solve problems. Like I dig that. I love that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just a puzzle room or something. I mean, like just issues in a game, you get this clue from this person and this, this clue from this other NPC and you've talked to five other people and you've gotten this physical clue. And now what are you doing? Right. Um, so to be clear, I'm not saying it can't happen or that it doesn't happen or that even that most people don't want. I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying that in the evolution of the game, it seems that it has been greatly reduced. That type of thing has been greatly reduced sure. in favor of, of addressing certain things in character building. So, so I think that they have not continued to teach it as an approach to game running mm -hmm. nearly as well as, as once they did. I think that 
Um, some aspects of Rime of the Frost Maiden pivot back to it really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I saw things in Wild Beyond the Witchlight that pivot, pivoted back toward a an emphasis on uh, social and exploration pillars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Famously, the combat pillar is optional. Right, right. Um, so, I don't know. Um, so anyway, so my my point to all kinds is to me, right? Yeah, I mean, of course, and and there are so many players, I, and I'm not. Again, I'm not a one true way person, right? So for sure, I'm not for saying sure. one way is better than the other, one edition is better than the other, whatever. I'm saying everybody has preferences, right? And yeah. I know my preferences. Yeah. And um, and because partly because the exploration side of the game has been greatly reduced that's why i favor games like castles and crusades and right. first edition D well, and, and basic and D&D. it's not that those games are so much better or written so much better or anything like that it's just that the character set of abilities talents and skills and problem solving things is so much smaller it's such a smaller pool of things they have to do the exploration part not using abilities yep Exactly. Uh, like your overall percentage of exploration abilities is, I mean, it's still zero. There are no features around exploration to right. speak of, Right. but you don't notice because you don't have a lot of other features for anything else. either. Right. 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 And so the game, the game is driven by, by, you know, and there's other aspects that go into why I prefer the older systems, but you know, sure. My only point is the reason why these four pages are so good is number one, they explain it in such basic detail that anybody who's played any number of editions, any number of hours of game, run any number of games could understand these three or four pages. And it would, it could be like a, a, a light bulb moment, right? It would, it could be a a defining moment in someone's understanding of what this even means to run a West March's game. Like that is, if you read the whole rest of this book and you didn't understand anything, the point of these three pages is to in plain language, other than the term indexing, that's, that feels not plain, but other than that term in plain language, they're explaining exactly how this works and what it means and what the product is at the table while you're doing it and why it's such a great thing. And the beautiful, and here's where I, why I keep hammering on this. The beautiful part about this is they wrote this for fifth edition. So they wrote this to speak to the people who aren't used to doing that exploration pillar real big. Right. Yep. Yep. I agree with that. Um, but like, I can't think of a single game, uh, within all of tabletop gaming or video gaming or LARPing. Uh, I can think of a single, oh, so, okay. Video game. I should specify, I suppose, adventure elements, mm-hmm. right? Something with role-playing and adventure elements, but, uh, tabletop game, LARP, most video games overall, uh, could benefit from reading these pages. Like, yeah, it's just that good a summary of the concepts of delivering story through uh, location, mm-hmm. through both the initial 
uh, description of location and through how it changes over time. That is such a powerful tool. Um, like events have to occur or occur in a place that place is always going to color them. Right. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably something happened there before. <laughs> yeah. That might matter. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. And the clues about what happened, it's not going to be obvious necessarily what happened, but you'll get the clues. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, the, the potential with a location that has, you know, one obvious way to string together the story and then multiple non-obvious ways to string together the story. I mean, that's great. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. That's that's just straight up cop drama stuff right there. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and like that that's a that's a great thing to be looking to if you want to strengthen your indexical storytelling. Right? Right. Yep. Go watch some cop dramas mm-hmm. and think about you know the clues they they're gathering and how they're stringing them together and then how the twist uh in the the late mid episode yeah. revises their understanding. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's part of the whole procedure. Absolutely. And usually it's that, Oh, all the evidence points to one suspect. And right. then the pivot, that pivot that you're talking about suddenly makes them realize, Oh, wait, this changes everything. Now that person doesn't make sense anymore. And that we got to find a new suspect. Yeah. And they may already know who that is and they may not. And then they spend the next half of the episode doing that. Anyway, so uh, then it has a sidebar. And it, it says, why, why tell emergent stories? What, in, in, in other words, it's trying to explain the joy of this. You know, the thing I, I described as a beautiful moment in gaming, right? And the, the beautiful scene in gaming. It's trying to explain why. Because I think they're aware that some people don't have this experience. They don't run games this way, right? Um, and so they're trying to explain basically the idea of, you know, when you're reading a book or watching a movie or a television show, uh, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. And the joy is in the journey, yep. right? And in fact, most of the time, if you're watching a show and you figure out what's going to happen beforehand, it ruins it. Right. In fact, that's the whole basis for spoilers. Right. When somebody spoils something, you know, it's sort of like uh, so uh, my brother uh, lives uh, in a different country. He's 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 overseas and he loves hockey, but he doesn't get hockey on the television the same way he would if he was in the U.S. So he has to stay away from any kind of news outlet or social media so that he can then watch his game at the time it's on at his local time and still get to enjoy the game. Sure. Right? If he, he hears or sees about, right. And so that kind of spoilation would ruin it for him. And there's no, no reason for him to watch it. It would ruin, oh. it would suck the joy out of it. Right. Same with movies, same with books for a lot of people. And so the whole idea of why tell emergent stories is it makes sure that nobody ever gets spoiled. We don't know what's going to happen. Not even the DM. Yeah, I mean the the phrasing of this that has really stuck with me um, comes from um, Apocalypse World, 
right? Play to mm. find out what mm-hmm. happens. Right. Yep. As a Play as a GM yep. principle. Mm-hmm. I love right. that. Yep. Because just remembering, hey, anything could happen. Mm-hmm. Like th- these creative players, maybe one of them like gets a weird itch to stab something in the face today. Right. Or maybe <laughs> one of them has an idea that no adventure writer or GM ever could have foreseen. Right. And something that is superficially the worst idea, but no, wait, actually that that's beautiful. Oh, right. oh. that is a brilliant solution. Let's do it. Like you, I, I, if I didn't think about it, right. And that's, you know, this also sort of speaks to the difficulty in writing a, an adventure for publication, right. Or any kind of scenario, no matter how long, whether it's a campaign or a tiny adventure or whatever, you have to try to write something that allows for player input at the table, right? Allows them to do things they want to do to play their PCs and have interesting things occur. And there's like five bazillion players. So you can't possibly, no matter who you are, you can be the best adventure writer ever. You can't possibly predict what every single player could want to do with every single possible character combination in every single possible party combination. Like there's just no way you cannot do it. So you have to provide a framework that allows the GM to be able to respond in an appropriate manner and not have to fumble around, right? Like they can actually with the adventure that's written that they purchased with their hard-earned money can now respond to their players who are doing cool and interesting things, right? And this speaks to that difficulty too. It's just that in this, you haven't written a very, you know, you haven't written a long 300 page campaign that you're trying to get your players to buy into, right? Here, the buy-in is the exploration and the mission and learning what we're going to do next and trying to figure out how to solve problems. And that, that fundamental buy-in doesn't require an overarching plot in a West Marches game. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Also some of the examples in here, um, I don't recall them from, uh, Ben Robbins original posts, like, um, especially, uh, some of the stuff about like regional bosses in, in the emerging story, mm-hmm. um, so it talks about uh, further many regions culminate towards uh, one larger endpoint, such as ending a magical effect or defeating a regional boss. That that may have been something been discussed, but I don't recall it. Um, but I mean that that is as much story as a lot of D and D games sort right. of need. Right. Uh, while at the same time um, being very recognizably something from. Um, Dark Souls, Elden Ring, Hollow okay. Knight, okay. Uh, a lot of the, the kinds of video games that um, the book is cited as, as inspirations. Right. So I, I think that's, I found that to be a really interesting point in this chapter. Um, and yeah, I mean, because remember, yeah. they're one, they're one example of um, like going in, into a region and at random intervals, lightning strikes, you know, 
five to 10 feet away from individual PCs. I think we talked about this in a previous episode and you know, if you have to keep, if the, if the party, whatever the makeup of the party is at any given time has to keep going into that region to solve some other problem or to, you know, plumb whatever dungeon or a tomb or whatever they're doing, right? If they have to keep going into that region and, you know, if the lightning is threatening to them and they need, or they need to, you know, the whole purpose of going into that region might just be to figure out why there's lightning all the time and to make that stop. There, right there, that's your region allowing you to have an emergent narrative and start giving a motivation and a focus for at least some of those PCs. Because remember, you have a huge roster and some of them might not care, right? They go there once and say, I'm not going back to that region, right? Yeah. Um, and some of them might decide to go back as part of their mission. But um, but yeah, definitely regional effects. I mean, I, yeah, just the whole way that this, this little uh, chapter section is structured is just so great. Yeah. Um. Yeah, like um, this really, this section just really resonates with me um, in in thinking about what has really spoken to me in Elden Ring, uh, like the way it is a much less guided experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are certainly times in Elden Ring when you want some more hand-holding because, mercy, you're getting thrown in the deep end. <laughs> um, at the same time, um, if you if you kind of stick with it and then engage with the community, which, as I've said before in this show, is the Elden Ring equivalent of, uh, you know, talking to some of the other players playing mm-hmm. the campaign right. and checking that table carved with your your the best map. knowledge yeah. map of mm-hmm. the West Marches, right? right? Um, then you can, you know get a bit of a, a, a life raft in the turbulent waters of um, the lands between. And that really speaks to me in, in gaming also, in, in tabletop gaming, I mean, say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that this section represents that really well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it does as well. Um, do you want to move on to uh, to the last page, the player narrative? Page? Yeah, absolutely. Look, a whole page with no art on it. It's rare in this book. <laughs> it but, is very rare. Um, I, I do suppose I should say that the, the art is really capturing a mood uh, in, this, in this section. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, definitely. All of all that art is it feels maybe even less like wasted space here mm-hmm. to me than than usual because it, it it is so moody and evocative to me right i mean i think we've talked about the art we've mentioned the art several times i think uh by now and if we haven't boy did we fall off the barrel there because uh yeah. the art in this book is stunning in a lot of ways uh, i mean that, that chapter five splash art whoa mm-hmm. i i want to know yeah. about that dude yeah. <laughs> yes. I I do not want that dude chasing me. I'll just say that. No, I want to play that dude. <laughs> he looks he's amazing. A, he's a rapier, looks like. Yeah, it, like blue torch and a rapier, mm-hmm. and cool. uh, some absolutely kicking dreads. Yeah. Yeah. Like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, player narrative. Yeah. Um. So basically, this this last this last page of chapter four and um. It's basically 
trying to sort of, it, it's, it's giving some advice about how to instruct the players regarding building backstories and how to perceive their characters and how they can learn to deal with emergent play as a character building exercise in a way. Um, they don't really say it like that, but that's really what their point is that yeah. uh, there's a tendency in modern games to build a really big backstory as part of character generation because it, character generation is an evolved, you know, an involved process and an evolved process from, from previous editions. And as part of that process, it's common to choose a background and you attach a backstory to that and you choose ideals, bonds, and flaws. And so you do all these things and it seems to build, it has a goal at least of building something like a whole person, right? And since it does that, that means that the players come into the campaign with a character that is a whole person and probably has some some amount of backstory with them, at least if not on paper in the person's head. And the problem is that that conception of a character doesn't necessarily end up matching the overall perception of the character by that player or the other players because of what happens during emergent play. In emergent play, a lot of times it's really unexpected. So, you know, the events and everything are unexpected. So the responses and reactions might not actually match what that player thought their character would be like. And sometimes that's a problem. Sometimes that feels unfulfilling for the, for the player. And so it gives some advice about that. Um, I don't know. So what I'll say about it is this. I, I can't say I don't know that it's it, it's okay advice. I can't say I don't know that it's good advice. It's good advice. It's okay. But the problem is that I think it doesn't help a person who doesn't want to like this style, right? Mm. Like, And it doesn't address really that sometimes you're just going to get players who this is just not a good fit for. Right. Well, I mean, the book as a whole has set up front. Sure. Absolutely. Not for everybody. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and this is one of the big areas that carves out that might not be for you. Mm -hmm. Right. Point. Right. Um, like since I've been talking about, about my homebrew campaign so much, this is definitely an area where I, have not been able to commit to a full West Marches thing, mm -hmm. right? The character backstories do matter. The NPCs move in the world and might come contact you mm -hmm. um, and move something forward with your backstory. Right. It, like a session is not all exploration out in the world. Sometimes events do come to you and show up mm -hmm. in your doorstep. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, what I guess I hope our listeners take from that is you can gain a lot from this book without going all in. Yeah. Right? yeah a a, a, a mm -hmm. partial commitment, you know, some West March's inspiration and ideals still works great, actually. Mm, right. Um, you may have to adjust and tweak other things, but it's fine. Yeah, Honestly, it's fine. There is a part early on where they basically say you have to do everything exactly this way or it won't work. And I think that's a little strong. 
it's it's um, it's kind of a stinking lie to me. Yeah, it, it, it's um, a bit strong. No, um, you do need to know why. Right. Each yes. thing is a good idea. Right, right. And what its payoff is, mm-hmm. and these things are interconnected, so there are going to be consequences. Right. It's just some of those consequences are are pretty much fine. Right, right. Well, and and the thing is, like a lot of times, the reason they're fine is because you know they're the consequences, and that's yeah. you know. You're already yeah. okay with them because the trade-off is something that's beneficial for a player or or some of the players in your game or whatever. Right. And that's or totally or if solved it some other way. Right, right, right. right. And right. and that's the thing is that um, so the book comes off strong early on, and then it sort of ends with this and doesn't really strongly say, you know what, you're going to have players that don't take to this, and it's okay to change things, right? And I guess that's where my right like. They don't really address. They basically say, "Well, if you have a if you have a, care, a player who's having trouble, you know, with the conception versus perception, or with you know the amount of character growth, or with how they their character isn't exactly what they want, or whatever." Um, shrug. Try to try to convince them that this is just how this kind of game works. Like that's that's not really helpful. Great advice, right? That's sure. That's that's more like, well, too bad, so sad, sucks to be you. Don't join next time, right? Like, and that's not. That's, that's not, not how social option. groups work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's not. That's not an option for a lot of people. So. Um. So that's where. I, that's why. I, that's what I was kind of meaning by. I'm yeah. not sure this addresses the issue that I that that it needs to be addressing. Um. Not that it's not well written and that the page is fine and 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 talks about, you know, mysteries and you know different things like that. But. Um. I think by the time the person gets to this chapter, I agree with you. I think what they haven't done is say they they need a they need one last paragraph or one last you know little section in here that says you know what okay now that you've had it all laid out, if you decide that some of these elements do not work for you and your group, if you change them here's the consequence and just like one extra page that says you know sure. if you do this here are the likely consequences so just think about those and maybe here you know a couple of sidebars about how you might fix them or how you might address them and then move on to other issues right that would have been really helpful here i i or maybe something in the appendix if they did that in the appendix would be really nice and that's something they don't do in this book that i feel like is missing but I mean, yeah. their purpose is to say, here's how you play this game this way. Here are all the rules and standard thoughts about it. And here's the framework. Here you go. Their purpose isn't to convert you all. And if you can't be converted wholly, then I'm going to convert you partially. Here's how to convert partially. That's not really what they're doing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, I think that uh, maybe of this whole page, um, like ongoing mysteries definitely speaks to me mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as just hey, the world is full of mysteries. They are very much story threads. They are story threads. I'm sorry, there's a story. That's yeah, fine. Right. Be okay with that. It's not a plot, <laughs> right. but it is a story. Right. Um, the, and players can take active steps to pursue it or not. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't, then something will happen or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then investment over time is actually really good, though it's only very tangentially about West Marches to me and very much more about just being a good member of a group. Right. Yeah. Which, since your group is so much larger, that, that's a really good note, right? right. Yeah. You're going to be engaging with a lot of characters that you don't otherwise 
engage with every time because the roster changes. Um, like the, the roster that I had in my game this past Sunday, that, that roster has never been aligned that way before. Right. There, there are new characters. There are characters who've never worked together before. It's just all over the place. And that's pretty neat. Yeah. No, that's, neat. that's really awesome. Yeah. Um, they get to like, bounce off of each other, learn each other's whole deal and have a new dynamic than, you know, uh, they might have with a different character of the same player. Right. Um, yep. yep. But investment over time is pretty much saying you need to care about more than just your own character. Try to care about the other characters mm-hmm. and what their, what their deal is. And um, if the only player to care about a character is that character's player, they'll eventually grow old. Sustained interest in a character comes not only from the, their creator's passion, but from care and engagement from other players. When the yeah. player pool is invested in each other's characters, possibly even more so than their own character, significant emotional attachment will emerge. I mean, that's good advice for, for just any, yeah. being a player mm-hmm. in a game. Yeah. Like, try to invest in other people's characters. Yeah. Um, well, like, so a good example is my D&D brief game yeah. where there is, I'm not going to spoil it because I don't think you've gotten a chance to hear this episode yet, but th- there is a point where one of the PCs basically has their storyline resolved. Yeah. And gets a choice. And the choice is basically leave the team, right? And go to bigger and better things, right? Yeah. Or stay with the team and help them finish their tasks. And it was a tough decision. Yeah. And it was one of those where the other players are letting the one player make the decision for his PC. Right. And the other players in character are like, you should go. This is amazing. It's what's best for you. You should, you should go. But they're also talking amongst themselves like crap. I hope he doesn't go, you know? (laughs) Right. And that player. And the reason why it was a tough decision is because everybody is invested in everyone else's PC. Yep. Right. Which also made it really hard to lose a player, by the way, when you, when you have a situation yeah. where everybody's invested and a player's gone suddenly, that sucks. Yeah, I mean, right? it's it's hard not to have, you know, a little bit of uh, a little bit of grief for, right. you know, both that you know, reduced personal chance to interact with mm-hmm. that player. Right, right. Yeah. that friendship has fewer contact, has less mm-hmm. contact now. Right, and also, like, your character is probably feeling some kind of way. Right, and you know, it's really, really hard to control for the emotional bleed of uh, this player left, and the character doesn't show up anymore. Right, like, right, the, yeah. There's no resolution there. There can't be. Right. Yeah, and whatever resolution there is is made up only on our side. It doesn't include the person who left. So, yep, you know, yeah. But I I found it very interesting. Getting back to this text, that uh, the investment over time, the very last thing in this book before the appendices, 
is a piece of advice, two or three paragraphs that apply to every game. <laughs> I find that yep. pretty pretty hilarious, right? I mean, this is very much a uh, a DMG two kind of book, mm-hmm. and they might as well go loud and proud with uh, some some good advice for players to hear here at the end. Yeah, it, it really is. I know you've said that before throughout this, and I, I've kind of gone, uh-huh, uh-huh. But, you know, if you take each of these individual pieces by themselves, even if you're not necessarily putting it wholly into the framework and context of a West Marches game, mm-hmm. every single page of this book has some good advice to give you, whether you're running West Marches or not, uh, and things to think about in terms of, you know, treasure and dungeon building and factions and weather and making equipment matter or not and making narrative emerge and all of these, you know, basically what it comes down to is even the advice in here that is specifically about a West Marches game can be taken and churned around and put into your brain and let it, let it simmer a little bit. And then you can figure out how much of that you want to apply to whatever game you're running, whatever style you're running. And I guarantee you there is advice in this book that would apply to whatever you're doing. Yep. Um, I mean, maybe more than anything else in the book, the, the pages on emergent narrative and indexical storytelling and show don't tell mm-hmm. just buy the rights to those pages <laughs> and, right. Uh, like pay um uh, Sam and Dom. This is Sam and Dom really generously and just copy pasta those bad boys into <laughs> the 2024 DMG. Right. I am yeah. not even kidding. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that you're gonna be yeah. able to improve on their phrasing. Mm-hmm. Like there might be other good formulations here, but mm-hmm. damn. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 so good. It's real good. I mean, I and and the thing is, you, you know, it also it it also speaks to the journey of this book, though, because if you put this in the front of the book, yeah, yeah, it's still good and it's still right, it's still correct, you know, uh-huh. the things it's saying. But for me, it probably wouldn't be as impactful. Right. right? They haven't built that foundation. They didn't build the foundation yet, and so it's placed perfectly, right? Um. In fact, this book is very well laid out. There are only a couple of things in here that I've had to say, hmm, maybe that would have been better three pages ago. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's very well laid out in terms of organization, right? Uh, and and it's very e- it flows easily from one piece to the next, and it really is a payoff to get to these last three pages, and it is a grand slam in the yep. ninth inning of the World Series of the. <laughs> Of the, you know, the, the, the walk off grand slam. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it it is that good. Skip Carey yelling, Braves win, Braves win, Braves win. (laughs) That's, that's what you're all hearing, right? You're all Braves fans. Uh, Cool. Good. Everyone listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Hey. You make it about baseball, you get what you get. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mentioned hockey earlier. Nobody said anything, so, you know. Uh, I mean, I like hockey fine, but I am yeah. literally from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I, I went to um, Atlanta Knights games and I went to Atlanta Thrashers games and I had a good time, but you know, yeah, yeah, you know, it's all good. My parents went to uh, Atlanta Flames games back when the Flames were in Atlanta. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, do you have any final thoughts on this chapter? Well, um, I, I love that. I love how strongly they've ended. Right. Um, and the, the text isn't over, over. It's just mostly over. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a lot of appendices that um, are relatively light on discussion. And so we're going to be covering them fairly quickly. But um, there's, there's more we need to say. On the other hand, as kind of the triumphant conclusion of what they had to say this this works to me i i think that um it really this rug really pulls the room together right yeah um yeah just um i don't know this, this is a lot of really good stuff that i hope i can bring out more in my own games um not that it was absent but uh, you can always stand to you know, bang that drum a little harder. Right. Um, I mean, my experience while prepping the session was wanting to get a, a base level of description of all the rooms and then go like introduce more and more wrinkles of, you know, okay, here's a thing that happened. And so that means this other thing happen over here and just tell myself the story but i had to know the whole location before i could start telling myself the story right right and i wouldn't say i finished but i made a good showing (laughs) yeah (laughs) i finished more than enough quite substantially more than enough for the session that i ran right um yeah so that was fine Well, I, I'm pretty much in agreement. I think they, they started strong and then they went out strong. And I mean, not that anything in the, in between is weak, but right. uh, you know, it didn't just sort of, uh, you know, Peter out, piddle down to nothing. And then the book stopped. Like they, they really went out with a really nice, nicely framed discussion about basically the culmination of everything that has gone before in, in the text. So yep. I think that's, that's as good an ending that you can have. Um, and then, of course, it's followed by, you know, 50 pages of appendices, but that's, we'll get to that in the next episode. <laughs> so, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. Uh, you can find me at tribality.com. Uh, my personal blog is brandisstoddard.com, and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel. You can find me on the Tome Show Discord. If you do not belong to the Tome Show Discord and you would like an invite, just uh, ping me on Twitter at DM Samuel and or ping at the Tome Show on Twitter. And you can find me at RPGmusings.com. And other than that, those are pretty much the places to find me. Oh, and on this podcast. <laughs>